Hello and welcome to Historical True Crime, the podcast where we take a look back at history's darkest crimes and criminals. I'm your host, Lizzie, and today is episode 65. We're diving into a chilling chapter of American history. Our focus is on a figure whose name may not be as familiar as some of the other infamous crimes and criminals we've already covered, but his impact on America is undeniable. Join us as we unravel the dark and disturbing tale of D.C. Stevenson. While his name may not immediately ring a bell, his influence was felt far beyond the headlines of his time. Born in 1891, Stevenson rose to prominence in the early 20th century as a key figure within the Ku Klux Klan, leaving a disturbing mark on American history. But this isn't just a story about one man's rise to power within a notorious organization. It's a narrative that unveils the complex layers of racism, political corruption, and the corrosive effects of unchecked authority. As we embark on this journey through the life and crimes of D.C. Stevenson, prepare yourselves for an exploration of a chapter that stains the pages of our past. So let's uncover the secrets, confront the uncomfortable truths, and shine a light on a dark episode in American history that cannot be forgotten. The Ku Klux Klan, or the KKK, was formed around 1865, only months after the Civil War had concluded, which left the United States fractured and scarred. In Tennessee, a group of Confederate veterans came together with a shared sense of loss and resentment. Fueled by a desire to resist the societal changes brought about by emancipation and reconstruction, they would form the Ku Klux Klan. Originally conceived as a secret society, the early Klan aimed to restore what they perceived as the natural order of society, promoting white supremacy and opposing civil rights for African Americans. Dressed in white robes and hoods to conceal their identities, the Klan would terrorize newly freed slaves and anyone sympathetic to their cause through intimidation, violence, and even murder. The Klan's tactics spread fear across the southern states, undermining efforts to rebuild and reunite the nation. By the early 1870s, as federal legislation sought to protect the rights of African Americans, the Klan's influence waned and eventually disbanded. However, this was not the end of the story. Resurgences of the Klan would occur in the early 20th century and during the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 1960s. Today, its legacy is a dark stain on American history, a reminder of the persistent struggles against racism and inequality. But how does D.C. Stevenson fit into the story of the rise of the Klan? Well, according to Abbott for Smithsonian Mag, Davis Curtis Stevenson, or D.C. Stevenson's, ascent appeared equally puzzling, given that very few people actually knew anything about him, including those who claimed to be his closest friends. Stevenson would claim, I'm a nobody from nowhere, really, but I have the biggest brains. I'm going to be the biggest man in the United States. Stevenson would tell people that his father was a prosperous South Bend businessman who had sponsored him to attend college before he left to take a job in the coal industry in Evansville. According to Stevenson, he volunteered for the Army when America would enter the war in 1917 and would receive a decoration for his valiant defense of France against the Germans. When he returned home, the equities he had bought before the war had become extremely valuable, making him a millionaire. He owned an automotive accessory company and wholesaled coal before joining the Ku Klux Klan around 1921. 
His leadership qualities won over the Knights at Atlanta, who would eventually name him to lead the group in the Hosier State. But most of what I just told you about his background simply wasn't true. As a son of a sharecropper, Stevenson was actually born in Houston, Texas in 1891. After moving to Oklahoma, the family would send him to a Methodist church for school. He was a voracious reader with a particular interest in politics and history. At 16, he'd complete his 8th grade education, and that would conclude his official schooling. After landing a position at a socialist newspaper, he researched the party's luminaries, especially Oscar Amaringer, who would later support African Americans' right to vote and assist in the election of a governor who opposed the Klan. Stevenson appreciated his approach, the way he presented his political views like a vaudeville performer, and he would eventually apply the socialist strategies at Klan demonstrations. Stevenson would marry Nettie Hamilton in 1915 and move to Madal, where he was employed by a local newspaper. However, Stevenson would lose his job after getting into a fight with his publisher after drinking, starting a cycle that would eventually become common. He drifted to Cushing, leaving his pregnant wife behind. Nettie would eventually locate him and file for divorce in 1917. Stevenson would then enlist in the army, but he didn't fight valiantly on the front lines of Europe. Instead, he was assigned to Boone, Iowa to serve as a recruiter. Following the war, he accepted a position as a traveling salesman and would meet Violet Carroll, his next wife, in Akron, Ohio. The couple would relocate to Evansville, Indiana, where Stevenson was employed by the Citizens Coal Company as a stock salesman and where there was activity by the recently resurgent Ku Klux Klan. Stevenson had a chaotic personal life. He was a heavy drinker, a womanizer who frequently lost his temper and had multiple run-ins with the law. His second marriage would end in divorce in 1922. Stevenson would overcome all of these personal hardships to eventually ascend to the position of Grand Dragon of the Klan in Indiana, which came with a great deal of wealth, corruption, and political influence. When Craig Wade's study of the Ku Klux Klan in the Fiery Cross breaks down the organization's history into three main periods, when it was first formed by Confederate veterans, the 1920s franchise era, and the mid-century era of the 1950s and 60s when it mobilized against the civil rights movement, its heyday by a wide measure occurred in the 1920s. In Washington, D.C., there were Klan marches where participants would wear their faces on display as they marched down the National Mall. Leaders of the Klan would meet with legislators and politicians. And it was during this time period that Stevenson was able to utilize this power. Two factors that were essential to the Klan's spread were a sense of victory and easy foes after World War I ended in 1918. After American soldiers won the Great War, there was a generalized overabundance of patriotism that targeted two people. The first was well known. Since the Klan's founding during the Reconstruction era, their goal has been to terrify and threaten black people. Despite Indiana's smaller black population than that of the southern states, black inhabitants nonetheless faced racial violence, especially in sundown towns, where black people were lynched by white locals. One such lynching that took place in Marion, Indiana, gained notoriety after a postcard featuring the incident was created. In this time period, the Klan was growing. There was a steady stream of new chapters being added, with comparatively little supervision from headquarters. The perfect conditions for a merciless man to leave his mark. 
According to Petty for Belt Mag, Stevenson's ascent was swift. Three years after joining the Klan, he would be speaking to 10,000 people and captivating them with his speech honed on the prairie. Furthermore, his hatefulness had made him wealthy. Stevenson kept 30% of the $10 membership fee people would pay to join the Klan. Additionally, there was an abundance of Klan memorabilia, including song sheets, booklets, and specially designed robes that cost $3 a hood. His aspirations soon exceeded Evansville. He relocated to Indianapolis, the state's capital and epicenter of power, and would open an office in a downtown building, located right off the circle. In addition to gathering data, Stevens had managed a very successful communication strategy. The offices of Indiana's Klan newspaper, the Fiery Cross, were located in the building next door. And the Fiery Cross had about 200,000 copies in circulation, and was a vital instrument for inflaming public opinion. Equipped with an extensive public, Stevenson proceeded to solidify his authority in politics. The Klan was a nearly unbeatable voting bloc. A politician would need the backing of Stevenson and the Klan in order to win an election. If not, Stevenson would incite his Klansmen to attack the politician, fabricating stories in the Fiery Cross about a politician's lack of Americanism or Catholic sympathies. Stevenson was without a doubt the state's kingmaker, and would achieve political success in the fall of 1924. The upcoming governor election indicated that Democrat Warren McRae, the incumbent, was a formidable contender. However, that would change when Stevenson threw the Ku Klux Klan's entire weight behind Republican Ed Jackson. Jackson, along with many other Klansmen, was friendly with Stevenson. Stevenson made sure to portray McRae as being in the pocket of Rome and presented Jackson as the man who would purge the state of evil Catholic influence. Jackson received enough votes to win the election. However, this triumphant moment would eventually lead to Stevenson's demise. On January 12, 1925, Stevenson would meet Madge Oberholzer at Governor Ed Jackson's inauguration ball. Madge attended the inaugural ball at the invitation of one of the members and spent her time creating name badges and conducting errands. She happened to be seated across from Stevenson at dinner. Madge was raised in Indianapolis, where her family were members of the Irvington Methodist Church and her father was employed as a postal clerk. Attending Butler College in Irvington, she would abruptly leave at the conclusion of her junior year without giving a reason and currently she was the manager of the Indiana Department of Public Instruction Special Division, the Indiana Young People's Reading Circle. At the age of 28, she continued to live with her parents, and it was at this ball that Stevenson would meet Madge and ask her to dance. Afterwards, the two would begin to socialize together on occasion, and on March 15, 1925, around 10 o'clock that evening, Madge came home from spending time with a friend, her mother informed her that Stevenson's secretary had called, stating that he needed to see her right away as he was heading to Chicago. Madge would leave her home to meet Stevenson. But after eight hours, her mother was furious that Madge had never returned home. According to Abbott for Smithsonian Mag, it would be two days later when a car would stop outside of Madge's home while her parents were having a meeting with their lawyer. A big man was carrying Madge upstairs when Border Eunice Schultz heard someone moaning. They were informed by this big man that Madge had been injured in a car accident. John Kingsbury, the family's physician, would rush to Madge's bedside after Schultz called. She was in a state of shock, Kingsbury recalled, 
Her body was cold. Madge would admit to him that she wanted to die and neither expected nor desired to get well. He pushed her until she told him everything. And what had happened was horrific. Madge was forced into a sleeping compartment on a train by three men during Stevenson's trip to Chicago. And it was during this time that Stevenson would sexually assault and severely injure her while holding her down and biting her. Madge describes the rape in intense detail and with great agony in her final statement. It reads, Stevenson took hold of the bottom of my dress and pulled it up over my head. I tried to fight what was weak and unsteady. Stevenson took hold of my two hands and held them. He chewed me all over my body, bit my neck and face, chewing my tongue, chewed my breasts until they bled, my back, my legs, my ankles, and mutilated me all over my body. After the assault, Stevenson would drive her to a hotel when they disembarked from the train in Hammond. Stevenson acted like everything was completely normal in the morning. Madge told him she had to go and purchase makeup at the drugstore, and he let her go, but not before sending one of his henchmen to escort her. Madge didn't actually purchase any makeup at the drugstore. Instead, she bought a box of mercury bichloride tablets. This was a time before the common use of antibiotics, and these tablets had many uses including being used to treat external infections, they could be used as a pesticide, or even at times to induce abortion. Madge took several pills back at the hotel. She meant to take all 18, but just couldn't do it. Upon realizing what Madge had done, Stevenson had his men put her in a car and they started their lengthy journey back to Indianapolis. When Madge finally received medical attention, it was limited to pumping her stomach and monitoring her condition. There wasn't much the doctor could do about her other injuries. She had open wounds all over her chest and bruises from her face to her ankles. In later testimony, John Kingsbury stated that the wounds seemed to have been caused by human teeth. On April 14th, almost one month later, she would pass away with her parents and a nurse by her side. Officially, her cause of death was mercury poisoning. One of the few people Stevenson was unable to influence Marion County Prosecutor William Remy would file charges against him for rape, kidnapping, conspiracy, and second-degree murder. Governor Jackson and other erstwhile political allies would quickly desert Stevenson, and the Indiana Courier referred to him as an enemy of the order. Stevenson's trial would be held in late October and early November of 1925. Stevenson himself refrained from testifying. But Madge's mother and the physician Kingsbury were called in by the prosecution, and both gave detailed accounts of the degree of Madge's injuries. She had numerous bite marks along her torso in addition to a deep cut on her cheek. Madge had died by suicide, which was a major argument of the defense. She purchased poison and willingly consumed it in private. Medical witnesses called by the prosecution said that Madge might have died from an infection contracted from the bites she received. They argued that if Stevenson had taken her to a doctor in Hammond rather than postponing care for five vital hours, she could have had a higher chance of survival. Following six hours of deliberation, a jury consisting of 12 men found Stevenson guilty of second-degree murder on November 14, 1925. Stevenson was sentenced to life in prison and headed to the Indiana State Prison only one week later. The Klan's membership in Indiana had fallen from a peak of half a million to just 4,000 by 1928, and Stevenson would be given parole after serving 25 years in jail, but he would break the terms of his parole within a year 
and was sent back to prison. He was freed once again in 1956, this time permanently. And at the age of 74, he passed away in Tennessee in 1964. And as we reach the conclusion of this episode into the life of D.C. Stevenson and the dark history of the Ku Klux Klan, it is important to reflect on the profound impact of this chilling chapter in American history. The KKK's history, marked by waves of resurgence, reveals the persistent struggles against racism and inequality in the United States. From its origins in the aftermath of the Civil War, to its involvement in the mid-20th century civil rights movement, the Klan's legacy is a stark reminder of the ongoing fight for justice and equality. In this episode, we explored not only the broader history of the Klan, but also the figure of Stevenson, whose life was a tumultuous mix of personal chaos and political influence. His swift descent to power and the tragic fate of Madge Olbeholzer underscore the dark consequences of his unchecked prejudice. As we close the chapter on D.C. Stevenson and the Ku Klux Klan, let's not forget the lessons embedded in this unsettling history. It serves as a stark reminder that the struggle for a just and inclusive society is ongoing, requiring vigilance and collective effort to overcome the shadows of the past. And with that, we've come to the end of another episode of Historical True Crime. If you've enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to review, rate, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. As always, if you have any feedback for us or suggestion of a case or criminal to cover, you can reach us on social media, on Instagram at Historical True Crime Pod, on Facebook at Historical True Crime Podcast, or you can send us an email at historicaltruecrimepod at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week for another dark and notorious case from history. We'll see you then.